Hello everyone and welcome to episode 247 of the MTG Goldfish podcast. I'm Seth, probably better known as Saffron Olive, and we have a small crew this week. Uh, unfortunately, Krim having some internet issues today, trying to get that sorted out, so we're two-manning it, me and the owner of MTG Goldfish, Richard. How are you today, Richard? Hey, Seth, doing well. How are you doing? Uh, I'm doing super well. I mean, we got a new magic set. We got standard rotation. So I've been having an absolute blast playing standard the last few days. So uh, I'm in a pretty good mood as far as magic is at the moment. And that's going to be one of our big topics for today. I think most of our cast is going to be talking in a stride midnight hunt, talking about limited and what's that's like. I know Richard has been doing some drafts. I've been playing a lot of standard. We had our first sort of big tournament in a Hooglandia open. So we got some deck lists to look at. So talking new standard, new limited in your stride midnight hunt. So that is the overview for today. Before we jump into it, a reminder that our show today is brought to you by Card Conduit. And Card Conduit, you've probably heard about them from us before. They are a great way to sell your magic collection, and they're offering a new service geared towards selling smaller batches of valuable cards with a reduced service fee. You can use their curated shipment service to sell your cards at the best available buy list price with only a 5% service fee. And like all of Card Conduit services, you don't gotta sort your cards, you don't gotta grade them, none of those hassles. Just safely package them up and ship them out, and they'll give you a detailed report with the results, so you can check out Card Conduit's curated shipment option as a way to buy lists up to 150 cards with fast processing, optimized prices, and the low, low service fee of just 5%, and you can even get another 10% off by going to cardconduit.com goldfish. Card Conduit, they're the easiest way to sell your magic cards, so thank you so much to Card Conduit for supporting the show, and let's talk some Innistrad Midnight Hunt. So, this was really weekend for the set, at least in paper. I know there were pre-release events going on, or it was release weekend in digital, and it was pre-release weekend in paper. Let's get that straight. So uh, I know, Richard, you're a, you're kind of a limited fan when a new set comes out. I haven't gotten a chance to play much limited, but I'm really curious what the format's like. I know last set, Adventures in Forgotten Realms, for the first time in a while, there was kind of like a lot of grumbling about it not being a very good limited format when Wizards had been kind of on a heater, I think, of making really good limited formats what is your first impression of innistrad midnight hunt limited yeah so i've been grinding limited i've played maybe like 10 events i don't know like a lot so i plan on playing standard so if i play standard that means i gotta like grind a billion matches of limited to get the wild cards and <laughs> complete the set mm -hmm. uh so yeah so i don't know it's okay it's i don't know it's I find, like, I have a lot of trouble making certain archetype works, like, uh, flashback, I can't get working, like, spells archetype is very hard. I feel the, your, your decks rely on your bombs a lot more in this set. I don't know if it's true or not, I've kind of been playing that long, but it seems swingy based on the bombs you open. And if you open, like, Hollowed Respite or something, you're just, like, sad face, right? <laughs> um, but, uh, Decayed, shockingly strong, like a 2-2 is actually decent in this format like it's 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 not as easy to stonewall them as you think it would be uh the format's pretty aggressive you need to actually curve out one drops are playable in the right decks uh werewolves are kind of hard to play with like i don't know but like maybe i'm too used to original innistrad but like i i punt so much thinking my werewolf will come down on the front side when it comes down on the back side like i have arlen play arlen like, i'll make some wolves like oh oops it's night uh, I guess I have a 5-5 five, five Trampler that can't block, and I'm dead. Uh, so so werewolves are hard. And then also, uh, if, if you don't play a werewolf card, it doesn't become day, right? So even if you pass the turn, it doesn't become night unless you trigger day. So there's a bit of nuance to uh, making it work. Uh, but uh, werewolves, big bodies, uh, but lots of removal in the set. Uh, but so far, it's like, okay, I, I don't know. We'll, we'll see how it flushes out. Uh, but... I'm just playing it so I can play standard. <laughs> it, it hasn't been like anything too yeah. crazy so far. <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, it is uh, it is the best way to build your collection, especially if you're halfway decent at limited. I've noticed that with werewolves, even in constructed. And I was wondering how much of it's just me being used to the old way werewolves work. Like maybe if we never had werewolves and never had the transform mechanic before, it would be super intuitive, uh, this new day night uh, way of doing it. But because I'm so used to how the old ones work, I tend to like default 
think of them like old werewolves, and that doesn't always work. I find myself getting blown out when I, like, someone plays a werewolf, like, on turn two, and it starts the day-night process, and then, like, five turns later, the the werewolf dies, and then, like, five turns later, it's still switching back from day and night, and then all of a sudden I, like, make some horrible mistake because I'm not paying attention to the fact that it's still switching back and forth. I almost wonder if that's, uh, if that was the right way to make the mechanic. I saw some people talking about it on uh, on Twitter, and I think it was LSV that said they might, in their cubes, uh, house rule it, essentially, to have werewolves work like old werewolves, yeah. uh, more like old werewolves, where you don't have to track it all the time. Because people were like, oh, do I put Suspicious Stowaway in my cube? It's a great cube card, but I don't really want to have to keep tracking this for the entire game for this one card. So, I don't know. I almost wonder if, if if it was correct to have it keep switching from day to night, even when there's nothing on the battlefield that cares about it. Yeah, I, I just feel it's non-intuitive, and I, I'm pretty sure it's just non-intuitive versus like we're we're like old people who played original uh, Innistrad <laughs> because like when, when you flip the cycle, like say you have a werewolf and you flip the cycle tonight or or today, it is not always a good thing for you. Like there are many times where you flip the cycle and you turn on their uh, Olivia's whatever removal, the thing that gives like minus 13, minus 13 at night. Or, you know, they play a big giant werewolf on their turn with haste and like smack you in the head because you decided to flip the cycle. So like there's a lot of gotchas to this mechanic, right? Like you don't always want to flip your werewolves, even if you think it's good because your opponent may have a better play on night. So it's just a little weird. Like it's kind of like um, the old school pump effects, like Bad Moon, where you play it thinking you're pumping your team, but surprise, your opponent's playing the black deck too, and they're <laughs> taking better advantage than you. And you're like, "What is this?" Right? Like I, I feel a little gotcha to this. Which Wizards hasn't been making gotcha cards recently, right? So it's it's a little weird. But maybe we'll get used to it. If you know, the more standard and more limited we play, that we get used to kind of this strategic element of werewolves. Yeah, I, I've already noticed that as well, like having to think, if you're up against a, a werewolf style deck or some sort of day-night deck, having to think, oh, do I need to make sure it like switches from day to night this turn? Because if they have like Arlen or something and it comes down as a 5-5 five, five haste indestructible, it's going to kill me. And it's really, it's interesting to have to think that way. I like the complexity. I think it's also worth mentioning, we're kind of playing on, uh, on easy mode since we're on arena and it automatically tracks day and night. I imagine in paper, there's probably going to be some mistakes. Like if you go back to that same situation where you play the werewolf on turn two and it dies and there's no more werewolves for, you know, a few turns, uh, it seems really easy to lose track <laughs> of tracking the day and night mechanic in paper. You got to so, call a judge yeah, well, to we'll unwind see. five turns to figure out if it's day or night. <laughs> and then like the, the effect is like you deal like one more damage with your card. That's yeah. It. <laughs> uh, yeah, totally, totally worth it. Is there anything that's uh, stuck out as like the best archetype in limited or your favorite archetype in limited so far? Or are you still just kind of figuring it out? Uh, I don't know. Like for, for grindy decks, I like green. Like there's like obnoxious loops. Like green has a lot of good flashback cards. The, the make a four, four beast and the two, three, three gain two life. And then they have the, I don't know the name of the card, the the regrowth with buyback, uh, with flashback. So like they can get insane value, they can get going. Uh, but you can also just kill them before anything happens. Like if you curve out <laughs> with vampires, right? Like interloper into like say Florian or something, right? Like people are dead. So a lot of people are uh, make like big armies of decayed zombies, but they can't block. And then you just like hit them. Uh, so <laughs> I don't know. I don't know how it's going to turn out, but... So far, I like aggressive strategies. If your deck comes together, if you have like a really good vampire deck, it's really hard to deal with. Or like a good zombies decayed, uh, where you're actually attacking with your decayed zombies and not trying to like get value out of them. It's really hard. Like you miss a land drop or something and you're dead. So, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I guess that's true. The decay zombies are pretty undercosted, even though they don't stick around. So I could imagine if you stumble a little bit against aggro, you're probably just getting run over super quickly. Yeah, you you would think normally a bear can be blocked pretty profitably, but there's like not a lot of good profitable like, you know, blockers and creatures like the, the zombies <clears throat> actually do some kind of work. And plus there's all the combat tricks to uh, give them death touch and to force them through and things like that. So they're, they're actually a lot better than I thought they would be. Interesting. Yeah, I think. 
Well, I mean, I've been playing them in standard, and maybe maybe it's time to shift and talk about our new standard format a little bit within the Stride Midnight Hunt. I've been playing them in standard, and I, I, I've come around on them a little bit. I still think as actual creatures are really bad, but if you can have the synergies for them, I found like Jadar to be very, very strong, where you're making this decay zombie every turn, and you're sacrificing it for value to Skullport Merchant or Village Rights or... Uh, the removal spell eat something that I can't remember the the name of the one mana one that lets you sack something to exile a creature or planeswalker. So there's a lot of synergies for them. So I, I've come around a little bit on decayed. I think uh, as far as standard is concerned, we had our first somewhat big tournament of the new format. Uh, we had a Hooglandia open, which had I think just over uh, or just under a hundred players. I think it was ninety some players in the event, which obviously not a three thousand player GP, but still a pretty reasonably sized event and i gotta say the first look at our new format it looks pretty it looks pretty good it looks pretty healthy like if you look at just the top eight i believe there's eight different decks i think every color is represented uh in in some form or another there's new decks that we hadn't really seen in standard 2022 there are some of the old decks like mono green or is it dragons that are still around so obviously it's like three days after set release it's not the time to make some big proclamation about standard being like amazing or whatever but so far so good i think for standard uh, i have had an absolute blast playing it have you uh have you got a chance to play any standard yet richard no, I'm still trying to get some cards from my deck, Seth. <laughs> I'm just like eight need rare bit drafts. drafts away from. Oh <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah, that is uh, that is a downside. I think I. I've uh, spent a lot of money uh, to be able to get the cards I need to play with, but I have been enjoying it. If we look at the the top eight of this event, I think the biggest takeaway is, and this kind of makes me happy because I've been really high on this card since it was spoiled, is that Ren and Seven is kind of insane. Ren and Seven was in the first place deck, but it's also just showing up in a lot of different archetypes, like Mono Green Aggro, four Ren and Sevens, Jund, uh, Jund Midrange, playing three Renin Sevens. We have just Simic Midrange playing Renin. Like, you name it, there's Werewolf decks that are playing Renin Seven. That card is so, so strong. And I don't think this is, like, some, you know, first week of standard weirdness. I think that Renin Seven is just, like, a legit one of the best cards in the standard format. And I like it. I, I've really enjoyed playing with Renin Seven. Uh, so, so that's been, I think, one of my big takeaways. Uh, otherwise... There's a lot of there's a lot of possibilities. The format feels really diverse and it kind of feels like you can do basically whatever you want right now, which, again, is probably partly because we just had rotation. We just got all these new cards. I'm sure we're not going to be seeing eight different decks in the top eight, you know, three months from now. That seems unlikely. But for now, I think standard is the format to be playing. And it's been a long time since I felt that way. And even though we're just going through rotation, we've even had rotations recently that haven't felt this way. Like last rotation, like, sure, it's still going to be adventures. Uh, energy is another one. I remember the energy rotation where literally nothing changed it was still our all energy decks so it's not guaranteed that standard's going to be good at rotation but this time i actually think standard is really good right now so so that's been sweet i think wizards might have finally fixed standard you say that <laughs> so <laughs> looking at the data right looking at the data what i see is there's basically two decks right now right and it's a red and seven deck right which color do you pair it's a race between like who can come up with the best red and seven deck and then if you're not playing green, the other color you need to be playing is red with uh, Goldspan Dragon and whatnot. And like maybe like the Is It deck with Alrin's Epiphany and things like that. But so far, 37% uh, of decks are running Ren and Seven. 33% uh, are running Asika's Chariot. Uh, Goldspan Dragon is coming in at, where's my dragon? 24%. Uh yeah. So yeah, like it, those are the two linchpins, and we 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 hype up Ren and Seven now. But how long before Ren and Seven becomes Nissa? That is my question. <laughs> Ren and Seven. I think we all looked at it during previous season. Like it's really strong. Uh, turns out it is strong. Um, it's just so much value, and green is in a good spot right now. So I suspect it'll just be a battle for like, what is the is it werewolves Ren and Seven? Is it Selesnia, Ren and Seven? Is it Jund? Like, where are we doing, you know, what are we doing to make the best out of Ren and Seven? And this was the problem with Nyssa, right? Nyssa 
bounced around. You're like Simic, Saltai. Like, where, what do you do? And then we ended up on like Simic for the most part, right? So uh, we'll, we'll see how it shakes out. But I'm a little worried about Ren and Seven here. And already people have found it to be a really strong card. So so my defense of Ren and Seven would be, uh, especially with the comparison to Nissa, is I don't think it's as immediate of a much uh, must answer threat. I think part of the frustration I had with Nissa is it really felt like your Nissa comes down, it untaps the land. Sometimes it lets your opponent leave up a counter or something. But even if it doesn't, it's basically like, can you kill Nissa on your turn? If not, you essentially just lose the game. Sometimes you literally lose the game, but otherwise your opponent casts a big hydroid crosses or casts, you know, they have double mana and they cast all this stuff. Renin seven, while it is a really powerful five mana green planeswalker, so I can see where their comparison comes from, it doesn't really do that. Like it, it makes a big token that can be dealt with by removal. It maybe draws you some cards. So it's certainly powerful, but it, I don't think it's the same as Nissa in the sense where if your opponent untaps with it for a turn, they're just going to win the game. If anything feels like that to me in our standard, it's probably Goldspan Dragon. And what I'm probably most scared of is honestly Elrond Epiphany decks. And that's the card that I've already seen people complaining about a little bit. I know it's not quite as high as like Renin 7 as far as metagame percentage from the Hooglandia Open, but it's still in like... 23% of decks, which is a pretty big number. Uh, and I find that card a little bit frustrating. What do you, what do you think about extra turn spells, Richard? This is something we were kind of talking about off cast and I was thinking about a little bit. Do you think we're at a point where we just can't print them anymore? Like, or they need to be like, ridiculously expensive, like 10 mana or 9 mana or something, so they're essentially not playable, but do you think we're just at a point in Magic's development where a single extra turn is just too good, no matter no matter how good the actual extra turn spell is, just the effect at any reasonable cost is too powerful in the current era of design? Probably, uh, but like, so the thing with extra turn spells, right? Like, when they suck, no one plays them, you never hear about them. When they're good, they're good, right? So uh, what when it's good, you see it, and it's like really in your face, and it's just really salt-inducing. Like your opponent is just like popping off, and you're sitting there doing nothing, and like you, you know they're they're taking extra turns, right? Extra turns is extra cards, it was extra mana, is extra attack steps, it's like extra everything. So I think you're right. Like we we probably are at a point where individual cards are so powerful that if I give you an extra turn, you're going to win the game. So as long as that extra turn is playable, uh, it'll probably be too good. So I think it's going to be this, like, I don't know, storm or dredge balancing act where wizards will print them and hopefully they're so bad that the only way you can play them is off of omniscience and commander. Uh, otherwise, they're just going to dominate whatever constructed format you play. Like, we, we already seen it with Nexus, right? Like, Extra turn spells have been a problem in standard for like recently, and I don't think this was any different. The, the only difference is like it could be like the best deck is some kind of like aggro deck that gets under all of this, and then therefore this is not relevant, right? But if we're in slow mid rangey battles and then you pop off with Elrond's Epiphany, it's like a lot of advantage yeah that's that's kind of where i come down i'm to the point where i've been messing around with this mono black kind of like sacrifice me hook massacre deck that i think i'm going to do for a video later this week and i was trying to play the mono black version and eventually i decided i needed to splash blue in my mono black deck just so i could have counter spells in the sideboard just so i could stop in Alrin's epiphany like it, that's how that's how big of a deal it was that i'm adding like blue mana just to play sideboard negates or disdainful strokes to try to answer this so in uh, this uh, yeah so i don't know i think hopefully it ends up being okay right now the the meta is still pretty open outside of the fact that I think you're right. Green is still really powerful. That's something we've talked about for the last couple of years. And the the first tournaments of Innistrad Midnight Hunt Standard definitely suggests that green is probably going to be the dominant color. And, and that might in part also be because of the theme of Innistrad Midnight Hunt. And maybe that changes when we get Innistrad Crimson Bound in a couple months, because the big theme of Midnight Hunt was werewolves. And those are, you know, a base green tribe. And then plus we got the Renin Six which is the other big push in a green from the set. Uh, but maybe that's going to change a lot once we get the next Innistrad set, which is theoretically going to power up vampires or whatever. That's something that was mostly missing this weekend from the tournaments. I think I saw one like lower ranked vampire deck, uh, but that wasn't really there.
there. We haven't really seen zombie decks uh, other than, you know, some standalone like Jadars and Sacrifice decks, but we haven't really seen a zombie tribal style deck. So maybe uh, maybe these underappreciated archetypes are going to uh, get a lot better once we get the second half of Innistrad, which is something I'm excited about. And I think that's something that really encourages me for this standard is even if this standard does end up being bad let's say the worst happens and a month from now it's all you know some green ren and six deck versus some Aaron's epiphany deck and that's basically the meta we got another set coming out in like two months not even two months now we're going to be in spoiler season a month from now we're going to be talking about the next set so even if it's not quite perfect yet we're going to have another chance for a shakeup. and at least i don't feel like there's there's an oko or an omnath I, maybe ren and six ends up being that but i feel like ren and or ren and seven ends up being that but i feel like ren and seven is too fair of a card to it, it's powerful but i don't think it's the kind of card that's going to omnath the format and and be absolutely miserable at least that's what i'm uh, what i'm hoping so i'm pretty encouraged about the current state of standard i would say i mean drag tusk is a fair card <laughs> i mean you, you could have a fair <laughs> card that warps the format as well right but i, I want to note that we had rotation right so these are all brand new decks usually what comes out on top is aggro right historically when everyone's just messing around you just curve out and beat face uh not so much aggro so far, right? Like the, the most aggressive decks are probably Boros aggro. Uh, they're, they're interspersed here. But like no mono red. Um, there's some mono green, but that's that's like not as aggro. They're playing red in seven, so I don't know if you want to count that as aggro or not, right? <laughs> uh, but yeah, like it, it, it's looking to be mid-range fest, I think. Like aggro decks don't look strong enough. And typically they're, they come out the gates firing. Typically they look over, overly strong week one. Yeah, I think, and I guess it partly depends on your definition of aggro. Like, is werewolves an aggro deck or a mid-range deck? Or maybe it's both depending on, depending on how you end up building it. But I think like werewolves is a deck that has done a lot of work. We have some like human decks or human-ish decks, but again, they're like, I don't know. They're not dedicated aggro decks. So I think that you're right. It is a little bit surprising to not see a mono red style deck on week one. Uh, because that is usually what happens with the format. Maybe this format's gonna gonna kind of work in reverse. And I think something you gotta consider with all of this is standard 2022, which is something that's kind of new. Uh, we've never had a super heavily played pre-rotation rotated format, but this time because of how much people disliked Eldorain, I guess, and Ikoria and some of the broken stuff from standard, that was like the primary format a lot of people played for two months. So I feel like people have a big head start in this format when in a normal rotation when you don't have that head start the easy thing to do is throw together all your mono red cards have an aggressive curve throw in a couple burn spells and just like uh, punish the people who are trying to figure out their you know mid-range decks punish the people who are trying to figure out their control decks but in this situation we already have is it dragons a really powerful mid-range deck we already have some of the sacrifice decks we already have some of the the ramp decks even the control decks there's like demure control was a big deck in a uh, standard 2022 so i feel like that's kind of sped up the process and that might be the reason why we don't see the aggro dominance on week one that we're used to is people just are further the formats further along than you would normally be on week one uh, because of standard 2022 and sure there's changes sure innistrad cards are added on top of that sure we see brand new decks like the selesnia ramp deck is essentially a, a ren and six deck that's the deck that won the tournament it's you know skew swarms and ren and sevens and just trying to do those shenanigans so we are seeing new stuff but i do think that standard 2022 had a pretty big impact on what we're seeing on week one and i think that's the default rather than the default being play an aggro deck for week one i think the default is if you don't know what's going on with the new cards play the deck that you thought was best during standard 2022 because that was four out of the five sets that are in our current standard and if you jam mono green aggro or mono white aggro or whatever it's probably not going to be too bad if it was you know a top tier deck in standard 2022 all right here's the million dollar question seth what deck should i play what should i use my precious wild cards on and craft to uh, get in on new standard. Oh, so, okay. So I'm assuming you're coming at this from the perspective of someone who is 
primarily trying to play the best deck. You're not trying to, you know, have a fun against the odds experience or whatever. You're trying to trying to get to mythic or whatever. From that perspective, I would say the safe bet is is it dragons. The deck has been good before rotation. It was good in standard 2022. It got some big additions in Innistrad Midnight Hunt. You're getting, you know, memory deluges. We're seeing smoldering eggs. I feel like that is the, that is the safe option. I think if you're worried about, oh no, I'm going to spend my wild cards on, on something and then have it not end up being good outside of something like Alrin's Epiphany being banned or Goldspan Dragon being banned, which is not going to happen at this point. It's something people have talked about. I would have a little bit of fear in the back of my mind that who knows if it becomes too dominant. The Wizards has shown they're willing to ban pretty frequently now. But other than the small risk of a banning, that's the safe choice for the format. I would say if I was going to put together a deck, I really think that Renin 7 is the best card in the format. I think Renin 7 is where I'd want to be. I The problem is, I don't know what the best Renin 7 deck is. I don't know if it's one of these landfall strategies. I don't know if it's the top end of Werewolves or some other, you know, aggro-ish mid-range deck. I don't know if it's a control deck. I, I think that's maybe something that hasn't been experimented with very well, but I've been messing around with, like, a Bant control deck with Renin 7 and found it to be an insane finisher. So I think the, the more risky route would be to pick up the Selesnia ramp deck or pick one, whatever of the Renin, Renin 7 decks uh, tickles your fancy the most and go that direction. But that is a little bit more speculative. So safe pick is at Dragons. More risky, but perhaps higher upside pick something with Renin 7, whatever, whatever of those decks you like. And then if you're trying to uh, be aggressive, I'd probably go with Mono Green. I think Mono Green is probably the best aggro deck. And that's another one that has a pretty long track record of being good in real standard before rotation and also being really good in uh, in standard 2022. Add those things together and there's a good chance that that's at least going to be like a solid second tier deck or maybe first tier deck heading into uh, our new format. But werewolves. Uh, werewolves. <laughs> where, so werewolves, I think, are good. My concern with werewolves, and I have loved playing werewolves, and I think they're really, they're really powerful. My concern with werewolves is I'm not a hundred percent sure if you actually need to be werewolf tribal or if you just should play the good werewolves at this point. Like a lot of the best werewolves, like primal adversary, werewolf pack leader, uh, reckless storm seeker are cards that you can just play in a gruel aggro deck, a gruel mid range deck, a mono green aggro deck. And the downside of werewolves is to fill your curve. You're kind of playing like outland liberator, which is a card that I don't think is super impressive. Kessig naturalist is, I guess your payoff for playing all werewolves. So my only concern with werewolves is, is it going to be a tribal deck or are we just going to see the good standalone werewolves show up in other in other decks? And we've already seen this to some extent with like Reckless Stormseeker is, I think, one of the big winners of week one. That's a card that is showing up in a lot of different decks. It's, I think, 23 percent of the decks at the Huglandia Open. One of the most played creatures right behind Goldspan Dragon, I think, number two slot. And that's a card that, yeah, it's great in werewolves, but it's also just a really good card in anything from mono red to you know multicolor aggro mid-range style deck so so yeah it'll be it'll be interesting to see how it all shakes out i think on the other end of the scale the stuff that we're waiting for more support in the next innistrad set is the the disappointments to me like i don't think we're gonna see like a top tier vampire deck at this point or a top tier zombie deck at this point. So those I'm going to be crossing my fingers that or even humans. I don't know if humans are going to get there yet. We might need one more set for those tribes to really take off in standard. So wait and see mode for those tribes. Anyway, any other any other standard thoughts, Richard? Uh, no. Well, I mean, I guess we keep moving on. We might have a we might have a shorter cast today. We don't actually really have any other topics on our list. Uh, so I don't know. Maybe we answer fish mail unless uh, unless you got something else uh, you want to talk about. Uh, the, the only interesting thing I, I saw was uh, the EV calculations are out on the website. Uh, ah, so typically I haven't actually seen those yet. So typically, uh, let, let me give you the EVs currently. So for um, a, a booster pack. The EV is uh, $3. <laughs> the price of a booster pack is uh, $3. Uh, so, like, box-wise, what we're talking about is about $103 of EV for a draft booster box. Retail price for a box is about 105 
uh, set boosters, uh, 110 for both EV and retail, and similar story for uh, collector booster boxes. Uh, they're slightly higher. Uh, the packs come in at $28 EV versus retail 21. Now, you may look at the EVs and say, oh, this looks pretty good. They're about equal, right? But typically when a new set comes out, the numbers that we see are heavily, heavily inflated, right? Usually uh, we're talking about like 50% more, right? And that's to two reasons, right? One, the retail prices. You never get retail prices when you sell your cards back, right? You should be taking like a big chunk, like maybe like 30% for like fees and like the fact that you're a small seller. And two, pre-sale prices are usually very high. Uh, so, you know, like the supply and demand haven't settled yet. Usually the prices are a lot higher. And then as the set releases, you see that the EV comes uh, in line. But like, for example, if we just look at Forgotten Realms, the EV right now is $125. A box sells for 95, right? And that's with the set been, you know, out for a while and it's about stabilized, which is about right, right? That's about the spread between... Uh, you know, buying from retail and then you selling yourself. Uh, so the EV looks pretty low. Do you have an idea what's what's up with this? Like, I feel like this is something that we've seen. Uh, we've seen kind of change a little bit recently. With uh, I think cards are being or sets are being priced more effectively more quickly by vendors i i feel like in the past we got to see this huge inflated uh inflated star and then the ev would be really high and then it would drop i feel like that's happening less i'm not 100 percent sure the reason i wonder if part of it is the shift towards so much standard play taking place in digital and uh, paper standards still not really being back at this point because if you look at kind of the most expensive cards in the set a lot of them are cards that aren't necessarily standard staples or even standard playables you're looking at like leer is one of the most expensive mythics in the set and that's not one of the most hype standard cards from the set so i feel feel like we've seen this shift where standard cards are being priced really cheaply maybe in part because everyone's uh playing digitally and there's no or not many i guess big paper tournaments at this point but then commander cards are being uh priced much more aggressively i think maybe the biggest example of this is actually just the dual lands in the past when you had a unique dual land cycle that's going to see heavy play in standard and the slow lands from innistrad midnight huh are the i would say the best dual lands in standard i know maybe you can argue for pathways but regardless this is a staple cycle this is not the snarls it's not a cycle you're trying to avoid playing but you gotta play it's a really strong land cycle and these cards are a couple of bucks three bucks four bucks when in the past i think those would have very clearly started off at 10 bucks um, you know somewhere in that range and then maybe fall down towards five bucks eventually so i i think that that is the big shift that uh, things are just being priced a lot differently now and we saw this even with adventures in forgotten realms which had the ev actually rise uh, where where it is now, where it's slightly positive, uh, that is actually an increase from where it was before. I wrote about this in some of the finance updates that the pro uh, the set was actually undercosted when it first came out because things like the creature lands were priced so cheaply, and we've started to see some of those increase now. So, so yeah, I think that it's definitely an interesting observation that the EV is very low. I guess the other possibility is. It's just not a very good set, but I feel like people have been pretty hyped for Innistrad Midnight Hunt, so I don't think it's that people just are interested. I tend to attribute it to just shifts in the in the multiverse as far as where people are playing and what cards people value, and paper standards still not back, and I think we're seeing that reflected in prices. Yeah. Uh, so is the new paradigm to buy during pre-sales because that's the cheapest time? <laughs> if everyone's underpricing I cards now and they, they rise after? I feel like that's become more of an option. In the past, my advice would always be never buy during pre-sales. That's always always a bad idea. Like 90% of the time, the cards are going to go down in price. I actually think it's become much more reasonable to get deals during the pre-sale period compared to uh, where it was in the past. But I still think you got to be selective. Uh, you still want to avoid often the most expensive cards in the set. And you want to be looking, I think the biggest impact has been on has been on rares. I think mythics are still, in general, somewhat inflated during, uh, during pre-sale 
sales, but a lot of rares, especially rare lands for the last couple of sets have been pretty underpriced, uh, almost surprisingly so. So I think there are way more deals to be had today than there were a year ago, a couple of years ago during pre-sales, although I would still be careful and I wouldn't say, oh, just buy all your stuff during pre-sales because we see stuff going up and down. We see the lands increasing in price, but at the same time, like the adversary cycle is decreasing in price. So if you just buy everything during pre-sales, there's still a lot of risk there. So I would focus on kind of the rares that you think are going to be heavily played. Uh, and those can actually be a pretty good deal during pre-sales at this point. All right. So if you want to check out there, the EVs are on the price list on the, on the website. So you can check them out. Uh, you know, every, every set release, uh, myself and Neoduck, the editor, uh, we, we have a fun time deciphering what wizards <laughs> means in their like, multiple documents of like how set boosters are distributed and like what is in which slot and like just i I, I get so angry every set i'm like oh my goodness right could you not just release a table with percentages (laughs) do you think do you think it's intentional or do you think it's just incompetence like do you think wizards wants it to be hard for people to figure out the ev or do you think they are just too lazy to to do it or whatever i i I think they want it to be hard like so they're they're trying to hide something right like because there there is an exact way in which they're they're doing it like they they have sheets they put cards on sheets they can give you the exact probabilities or they can at least tell you what's on each sheet right so they can do it, but they actually spend all this time crafting like complex sentences, right? It's like if I if I told you like there's a formula, you know, one plus two equals three, and rather than write that out, I give you like an eight page story, like crafting this, right? Like that's what Wizards does, and I'm like, it is so convoluted that I, I'm pretty sure if I gave it to like ninety percent of Wizards employees and asked them to like break back like what the percentages of each card is, they they could not do it. So, like, I'm not sure what it's for. I think it's just so that you don't understand and all you see is, like, collector booster good, right? Shiny cards, right? Set booster, not as good, but not as bad as draft booster. Draft booster, bad, but only buy if you want to draft, right? Like, I think that's what they want you to take away from it uh, and not actually understand the exact probabilities of getting uh, which card, and where that that kind of sounds like arena that's something we've talked about for a long time with arena how a lot of how the economy is set up is just not really comprehensible like you know you got to keep putting in money or time to try to get the cards you want but as far as figuring out the actual percentages there's like these really convoluted in-depth documents with all this stuff and some of the information's right and some of it's outdated and not actually correct so i kind of lean that way too that wizard's doesn't necessarily want EV breakdowns because I mean, EV breakdowns are, I think a double-edged sword for wizard. I think when they come out good and I'm writing an article about how the EV is, you know, awesome and opening a box is likely going to make you money. I'm sure that that is a positive for wizards, but when it comes out kind of like, man, like the value is not very good. I don't know if it's worth it. I'm sure that that's not the kind of article that they want (laughs) written about their set when their goal is for people to buy it. So I, I could see the, the incentive there for wizards to try to obscure the information or, or make it not easy to figure out the information because I don't actually know if the EV breakdowns are are something that they consider a positive or not, honestly. Yeah, but like as a consumer, you should know what you're buying. It's like going to McDonald's and you're like, how many calories are in this like Big Mac? And they're like, don't worry, it's healthy. You're like, what? No, by law, they have to put the calories there, right? So when I fork over $100 plus for a booster box or $200 for like a collector box, I would like to know the probability of getting a card, you know, not like... One in four chance you get this, but out of those one times, one in eight, you get upgraded to something in a wild card slot, which gets upgraded to this other thing. And like, it's just too convoluted. <clears throat> oh, speaking of speaking of finance, uh, we got a got another little finance tidbit this week where uh, Mark Rosewater confirmed on his blog that 20 mythics are here to stay. That's something we had speculated about. I wrote an article actually wondering about it. If it was a, a double face card thing, maybe if it was just for the MDFCs, they were adding these extra cards to like up the mythics. Uh, but it sounds like, according to Mark Rosewater, that is the new normal. 20 mythics for standard sets. They did do it, he said, for MDFCs, but they decided they like it, so they're keeping it. As far as paper is concerned 
it doesn't really make a difference. It's more mythics, I guess, to collect overall. But because of how sheet printing works, your odds of getting a mythic shouldn't really change in a meaningful way. On the other hand, I notice trying to get the Innistrad cards I need on uh, on Arena <clears throat> that uh, it's actually way, way more expensive now uh, where you would uh, those five extra mythics might not seem like much. But when you consider you might need a playset of each of them and you consider how infrequently mythic wild cards and mythic show up. I got to the point this time where I had all the rares and I still was significantly short on mythics and just opening packs of, you know, a whole bunch of gems trying to find a mythic or find a mythic wild card. So uh, I don't know if that's a reasoning. I I'm trying to think of any other explanation for adding these extra mythics other than trying to make more money on Arena. Good, like, good maybe that's wizards. They just heard, being jaded, but... They heard you were short on rare wild cards, Seth, and uh, <laughs> people had too many mythic wild cards. They're like, I need to trade down to rare wild cards. They're like, don't worry, we got you. We'll just add more mythics. <laughs> uh, I mean, I think it is good. Maybe it's good for free-to-play players, because I know there's kind of this uh, disconnect there where if you're someone who spends a lot of money on Arena, you're usually pinched on mythics, but if you're a free-to-play player, you're usually pinched on rares, so maybe it's a fine thing for for people who are free to play playing but i noticed like i'm used to spending a lot of money each set on arena but whew, this set was especially painful and it seems like that's just gonna be the new normal with those five extra mythics there so i guess we'll see i mean wizards gotta make their money somehow i guess <laughs> oh anyway uh Maybe we should uh, answer a few fish mail. Do we have some fish mail today, Richard? All right. If you have questions, send them to at Goldfish with the hashtag mtgfishmail, and we'll get to your questions on air. Uh, Eli Jones, do you think three-color legendary <coughs> creatures with partner are possible? Uh, do you think they'd be pushed or super nerfed? Oh, my goodness. Uh, so... Ooh, just, like, real partner, where you can partner with anything... Yeah. I would lean towards super nerfed. I think that the original two color partners are generally considered to be overpowered and even maybe a mistake at this point. And three colors would make them even better. It would be really easy to have a three color partner and a two color partner and play five colors. So I think it's possible that they make them eventually, but I do think that they would be pretty safe and powered down. Yeah, I think. The more recent partners they made have been kind of watered down compared to the original. But I do think they'll mm -hmm. make three color partners at some point, right? Because it basically enables you to do anything now, right? You can build any 5C or 4C deck you want. Um, and I actually kind of like partners. They just give you an option for deck building. And you don't have to play with them if you don't want to. Right. It was just we don't want I, them to be too strong, but flavor wise, I'm like, eh. yeah, I like them if they're not too overpowered. I think the idea is cool and you should have this like ability to shift your commanders in and out and it adds more diversity. I think that the, the real problem with the original ones is some of the individual cards were just too pushed. And I've noticed like looking at CDH deck lists, uh, there are certain partner pairings that are just kind of stand out above everything else and actually end up kind of making things less diverse if you want to play certain colors there's just like a go-to generically strong partner pairing that you play so maybe adding more uh partners would help with that to some extent but i do think that if uh if partners are too powerful it ends up being a negative for the format rather than a positive but partners existing and being like decent i think is overall a positive for commander what, what i want is like a Golos partner, Seth. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, they could they could put three color partners and have uh, busted partner pairings in five colors, and it still wouldn't be anywhere near as busted. Wait, 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 wait. What, what if he took Golos <laughs> and split it across two partners? So one partner like ramps you ETV, and then the other partner spins the wheel. <laughs> Oh, that, that would actually be kind of fun. That might be all right. Although I think the ramp EDB is something we're going to avoid. Yeah. I think that was the big problem with Golos is just the repeatable ramping. Yeah. Uh, Marco124, uh, why are you guys not making top 10 lists for Pioneer anymore? It seems like you for completely forgot about the format. I played it last week and it's great. <laughs> So uh, the big reason that we didn't do a top 10, uh, at least yet for Innistrad Midnight Hunt, was really that me and Krim, neither one of us have played it a ton recently, and it felt weird to be 
doing a countdown and sharing my expert opinion on a format that neither one of us had really been playing super actively. So it's still something that I want to do and I still think it's possible, but I'm leaning towards trying to have a, a pioneer expert in to, uh, to do a top 10, uh, when, uh, kind of like we did with Popper in the past, where at various points in the past, I would do a top 10 for Popper, but I would uh, bring in someone who kind of specialized in that format and lean on them for their expertise. So that's what I'm kind of leaning towards right now until, until, uh, I start playing more pioneer or Krim starts playing more pioneer. We have more firsthand experience. So. But that is that is the main uh, the main reason it's still on the agenda. I'm still hoping to do it, but it might just be a little bit different than the top tens that Krim and I do. Yeah, challenger decks on the horizon, so maybe it's time for the resurgence of Pioneer. Yeah, and I mean there was a there was an article about the challenger decks a week ago, so yes. I haven't I haven't completely forgotten about Pioneer. So don't worry, it's still in my mind, and there still will be some Pioneer stuff. Uh, I mean we're gonna focus a lot on standard right now with rotation and stuff, but Pioneer will still be there. All right. From Hazenko, if you could trade four of the same card for a wild card of the same rarity, uh, would the arena economy improve? Players that only play standard standard would love to trade four Cauldron of Eternity for Brazen Borrower or Brazen Borrower for one wild card, and other players would like it too. Yes. That would be a huge improvement. That would be the system a lot of other games use, essentially, with the dusting system. And I don't know what the exact numbers that would be right for Arena. And I know one of the concerns is they give out wild cards, so you have to take that into consideration when you're doing the the numbers. Games like Hearthstone don't give out wild cards, uh, so that's kind of a way that Arena is more generous. But I think that having more control over your collection and some sort of dusting or trading, that's something I've been calling for since Arena was created. And I think that would go a long way towards improving the economy because the biggest issue I have with Arena isn't getting your first bunch of cards. I notice this both with Innistrad and with Jumpstart Historic Horizons. You can get your first, you know, uh, group of cards that you need pretty easily. But after you get through your first whatever amount of cards, you get this huge amount of diminishing returns. And then you're just opening packs that you really don't want, that don't really give you anything, just to try to get a mythic wild card. So you can spend it on the chatter thing you need for an against the odds deck, or there's one mythic that you're missing. And that feels really, really brutal and being able to trade in one weird roundabout way or another your cards for a wild card would greatly improve those scenarios at least even if it didn't drastically decrease the cost of the game overall it would make it a lot less frustrating i think at least uh, at least for people in my position yeah i'd like to see a way to trade cards like not trade like player to player but like if you have one card to swap it for another card because Aside from making the game cheaper, I think it is actually leading to the downfall of the game. Like the meta becomes stale because people just play their best deck and, you know, it's too expensive to acquire a second deck, right? Or like why craft a janky zombie deck when, you know, Ren and Seven exists, right? Like because they're the same value, you would never get the worser card, right? You would go for the better card and then hence everyone just plays Ren and Seven. Uh, so I would like some way where you can experiment with lower uh, power or like un- underplayed cards without like committing the same amount of resources as your tier one deck so that we can actually play brews and stuff without being heavily punished. Yeah, oh, that would be that would be so nice. And I think when Arena came out, everyone was excited because they were like, oh, I get to get my uh, Jace the Mind Sculptor for the same price as an Archangel's Light. Uh, but then they forget that that also means Archangel's Light costs the same as the Jace <laughs> the Mind Sculptor. And then you're never going to get the Archangel's Light because why would you spend your precious limited resources on this janky card when you could be getting a good card? I think the overall solution uh is is some sort of subscription model that would be the best after seeing it come to magic online and experiencing the absolute joy of just being able to play anything you want whenever you want by playing a monthly fee that would be my dream is some sort of system like that coming to arena like give us this much money a month and you just have all the cards Uh, you still got to pay to enter your tournaments if you want to do tournaments with prizes or whatever but as far as card acquisition just give us give us some money and we'll give you everything because uh, that has been so so nice and so revolutionary for magic online i only wish it happened to magic online earlier like unfortunately the loan program started right 
around or even after, I think, Arena came out. So uh, Magic Online was already losing players to Arena, but it is hard to overstate how nice the loan programs are and just how convenient that makes playing and how much better it makes it because you can play whatever you want. You're not tied to playing only the best cards. So something like that coming to Arena would be spectacular. Yeah, you got to use all of them combined. Here's my strategy. <laughs> you you first, you you farm the base set playing limited. And then you hop over to Moto and use a loan program to test out various standard decks <laughs> to see, you know, which decks you want to play and uh, see, you know, do you actually want to be casting Red in Seven? Do you want to be that guy, right? And then once you've confirmed that, you go back to Arena and you craft your wild cards and then play that deck for the next three months while you complain about standard, right? That's my strategy going forward. Uh, I've tested it. Like standard actually fires on Moto. Right, because I was very concerned that no one plays standard on Moto, but I'm like, oh, people still play standard on Moto. Okay, so we can actually do this, and that's how I can figure out a standard deck without you know losing all my money crafting like terrible werewolves or you know whatever. Right, because I, I you know I always play dirty green creatures, and sometimes they're not good. Right, so I, I would like to know that beforehand. Uh, so, yeah, I would it's, recommend the two prong <laughs> approach here. <laughs> it's hilarious that the best way to build a deck on Arena involves magic online somehow. But I, I think you're right. But that's just so funny. I mean, this used to be the case <laughs> with tabletop paper, right? Like, you know, you have a, a Grand Prix or a Pro Tour coming up, right? You need to buy a deck. So you grind Moto, right? To figure out what the best deck is for the exact sideboard configuration. And then when you're satisfied, you lock it in, you buy your paper cards, and then you travel to the Grand Prix and crush, right? So uh, now we got to do that. So like the, the cost of going to a Grand Prix is the cost of playing Magic Arena. So, you know, you got to you gotta do the moto thing. And uh, yeah, I'll, I'll let you know how it goes in a who, couple of weeks. <laughs> who would have who thought that whatever three four years after arena release that magic online would be like the budget client where you go because it's cheaper because that was the exact opposite of what everyone was expecting like everyone was uh, the biggest one of the biggest complaints about magic online was its cost there was no free to play option you got to buy the cards it was kind of expensive and that was one of the big complaints so then arena comes out and it turns out that unless you're free to play playing arena is actually really expensive and then loan programs came out on magic Magic Online. So now somehow in the weirdest twist of fate, Magic Online's like the budget client and Magic Arena is actually like the super expensive client if you're a, if you're a paying customer, which who, who would have guessed? Who would have guessed? That's the exact opposite, I think, of what basically everyone expected. All right. Uh, I think that's all the fish mail we have for this week. So thank you to everyone who sent in fish mail. If you have questions in the future, you can send them to at Goldfish with the hashtag MGFishMail, and we'll get to your questions on air. And I believe that brings us to the end of episode 347 of the MTG Goldfish podcast. So, Richard, thanks for hanging out. Thanks to everyone for listening. And uh, let us know what you think in the comments. Uh, what have you been experiencing in Standard? What's been good? What do you think of the format? Did they finally fix it? Let us know what you think. Anyway, thanks for listening, everyone. Hope you enjoyed it. And we will be back next week to talk about whatever goes down in the world of magic. So until then, have a spectacular week. And this is the crew signing out.